0: the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Loving God, quicken our hearts again, that we may receive your word anew. Send the refreshing wind of your spirit upon us, Lord, that your voice may be heard in our hearts, and your loving presence seen in all that we say and do. Bless your word to us this day, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, the word of the Lord. evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not tie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, you, Riley. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we'll pick up our reading in verse 1. In your pew Bibles, it starts on page 282. Well, last week in Greg's sermon, we heard the first part of the Ten Commandments, these words that summarize what it would look like to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, for God to be supreme in our affections. And yet the commandments go on because a relationship with God affects more than just our relationship with God. It affects all of our lives and all of our relationships with all other people, those the Bible simply calls our neighbor this morning as we look at the rest of that scripture passage, uh, we're going to look at a passage that helps flesh out what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, why it is that we struggle that, and how it's possible. So we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare the word that the Lord, the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The following nine verses are what we looked at last week, and so today we jump ahead to verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. What do we see here in this passage? Uh, At first, it can just look like a long to-do list or maybe a to-don't list. Like, you know, do honor your parents, but while you're at it, don't commit murder, adultery, theft, perjury, or coveting while you're at it. But if we take a closer look, there's actually a lot more going on in, in these commandments. We actually see a lot about relationships, a lot about how a relationship with God would affect the rest of our relationships. In verse 16, and, and on this Father's Day, it talks about the first people that we have a relationship with, saying, honor your father and mother, are the ones that God instructs to teach their children about him and about his commandments. But in their time, the term father and mother were used of not just their parents, but also terms used to refer to those in positions of authority, including the Old Testament judges and kings. The word that we see here, honor, is actually related to this Hebrew word for heavy. It's about how we relate to another, either as those whose influence we weigh heavily in our lives or lightly with us. In other words, those we deem worthy of influence over us are those that we deem not worthy of any influence. In other words, it's a commandment about how we relate to those in authority. In the commandments that follow in verses 17 and 18, it talks about how we relate to those that we have strong feelings about, those we have strong feelings against in the prohibition of murder, and those that we have strong feelings towards in the prohibition of adultery. Yet, it looks as we look on, we see that it talks not only about how we relate to others uh, with our actions, what we do with our bodies, particularly when those desires go unchecked and lead us into things we shouldn't do, but it talks about how we treat others, showing that that even includes... Uh, what belongs to them, their possessions, when it says, you shall not steal. Verse 20, it talks about how we relate to people with our words, particularly when our words can either affect another person's livelihood, their reputation, or even their freedom, when it says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. These commandments, this fifth through ninth commandment that we just talked about are all about relationships, actually telling us what does it look like to actually love your neighbor as yourself. So what does God give us for the grand finale? What's the the final word of the Ten Commandments? So the most recognized moral code in human history. Probably not what we would have expected. Because it says in verse 21 something about coveting. Coveting is in many sense the opposite of, of contentment. The opposite of being satisfied with what God has given. Coveting is not simply about wanting something. But that's actually a part of it. That's where it starts. You see, if you look in verse 21, you maybe get a a clearer picture of it in the parallel phrase to coveting, quote, set your desire on. In other words, it's not about just having a desire for something, but actively setting on something or someone else your desire for significance, your desire for meaning, your desire for life satisfaction. It's what we sometimes call pining after something. Maybe you know that feeling, and maybe you know the voice that it speaks. The voice that speaks to you, if I only have this, if I only have that, if I only have them, then I can be whole, then I can be happy. You see, coveting often comes in the form of placing otherworldly expectations on worldly things, infinite expectations on finite things, so much so that you find yourself willing to do anything to have them, even the things that you know in your sane mind, in your right mind, that you shouldn't. In other words, to covet something is to let your desire for something control you, to let it enslave you. Coveting is not about what you do or don't do, but actually about what you do with your, it's not about what you do with your actions, it's about what you do with your desires. Coveting is actually about the heart. And so in the most recognized moral code in in human history, the grand finale is not about your actions. It's not about your behaviors. It's actually about your hearts. Why is that? Why would you end the Ten Commandments like this? Well, it's because the God who gave them, who knows both our actions and our inward motives, our uh, heart, if you will, is actually most concerned with the heart. We see this priority when God handpicked the king who would lead his people. King David, giving them somebody they wouldn't have expected, as it says in 1 Samuel 6-7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the reason why that God is so concerned about the heart is that he knows the influence that it plays in our lives. You see, it's in the heart that we actually find the root of all of our actions and all of our behaviors all of them, and even our words. Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as one scholar put it, what lives in the heart never stays hidden. In verse 21 of our passage, you may have noticed that it talks about the heart condition that leads to breaking some of the other commandments it just mentions, when it talks about the things that we covet and the things that we set our desires upon. Whether we're talking about a possession, a person, or a relationship. As one theologian put it, the other commandments just show us what a coveting heart looks like in action. If you find this analogy helpful, think about it this way. Think of coveting as the bridge that you always cross on the journey from a simple desire to a sinful action. And yet, coveting itself, the act of building those bridges inside of us is not an innocent uh, endeavor. It's actually a matter of the heart and if we take a closer look at the previous commandments we actually see that they're all matters of the heart that that's what's behind all of them in your failing in our failing to honor others as we should our hearts actually hold people in less esteem than God does and makes light of those that God says are actually worthy of our honor it's significant that it says honor here rather than just obey because if you think about it you can obey a speed limit while at the same time absolutely hating the people that set them and enforce them. You can hate somebody and still do what they say, but you can't hate and honor. Honoring is something more than just obedience, and it has to do with the heart. If you look at the rest of the commandments, we discover that behind the heart that would seek murder or that would tell harmful lies about another is a heart that devalues the lives or the livelihoods or even the reputations of those that we find ourselves in conflict with. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about the hatred and the contempt at the root of the heart that would commit murder, even if it never takes that form. We see it in different forms in our life even more often. We can find ourselves thinking in our hearts of the most piercing way that we can wound somebody, feeling, well, I shouldn't do that with my actions, so instead we do it with our words, with our choice of words, with that biting turn of the phrase meant to sting. And in doing so, we prove Jesus right, showing that the heart that wants to hurt another in any way that it can is still alive and well in us. In that same sermon, Jesus talks about the heart of adultery being alive in our lust, telling us that the seventh commandment, the commandment about adultery, isn't just about what we do with our bodies. It's also about what we do with our eyes and what we do in our minds, confronting the fact that our hearts see as objects, those that God sees as his image bears. And yet those things that rightly are objects, the thief's greedy heart treats what belongs to another as if they actually belonged to themselves. And the reason why, is elaborated on in the Tenth Commandment, is that our coveting hearts actually devalue the life that God has given us and in their discontent envy the life or part of the life that God has given to another. That's why social media can be toxic for so many of us because our hearts can't rejoice over the blessings that we see others given when we know that we have not been given the same And maybe all of that is different than what you typically think of when you hear the words the Ten Commandments. So while we're at it, we might as well mention that the Ten Commandments were never meant to be an exhaustive list, but rather a representative list. The commands that follow in scriptures in many ways are just an elaboration of these first ones. And these last six commandments that we just looked at are really just an unpacking of what Jesus called the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, In other words, to treat their needs the way that you would treat your own needs, to treat uh, their honor, to treat their good the way that you would pursue your own honor or your own good. That's the moral ideal. You see, the things explicitly mentioned in the Ten Commandments don't represent the moral ceiling, if you will, the highest standard, but they actually represent the lowest standard, the bare minimum, the, the moral floor, if you will. At heart, the heart of all these commandments, God is actually giving us a challenge to our heart, it's something that's more challenging than we might think. Um, one tribal chief from the Indonesian Taraja people actually got it quite right when he compared all of his people's laws, the 7,777 laws of the Taraja people to the Ten Commandments, and he says he would rather have to obey the 7,000 plus laws than just the Ten Commandments because in his own people's laws, he says he sees a lot of wiggle room. But the Ten Commandments actually require the whole heart. If that's what God is actually after in our lives, and if our failure in that regard is what really keeps us from loving our neighbors as we should, what's actually keeping us from giving God the whole heart? What's wrong with our hearts? Well, in Jeremiah 79, we read this, The heart is deceitful above all things. What does that mean that the heart is deceitful? Well, this last week, I came across uh, some research from the Josephson Institute in Los Angeles, which conducted a character survey of nearly 30,000 high school students at 100 randomly selected schools nationwide, and here's some of what they discovered. 64% of students said that they had cheated on a test in the last year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% said that they would lie to save money. And 83% said that they had lied to their parents about something significant. Despite so many of them confessing fraud and and theft and greed and dishonor in their own lives, and recently, 93% of the students in that same survey said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and their character, with 77% adding, get this, I am better than most people I know. For those who know their math, that's called irony. Um, For those who know their psychology, it's actually called illusory Superiority, but more commonly called the Lake Wobegon effect, named after that fictional town in Wisconsin where all of the children are above average. See the problem with our hearts so deceiving us doesn't actually stop as we get older. According to another researcher uh, researching adults, the average person believes that he is a better person than the average person. Christian psychologist Mark McMinn contends that the Lake Wobegon effect actually reveals something else about our humanity, reveals our pride. And our pride actually distorts our perception of reality, including our perception of ourselves. It's, it's what uh, we hear about in Proverbs 21, verse 2, which says, All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. And one way that God reveals the truth about our hearts is through his commandments, In Romans 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But the deceitfulness of our hearts isn't just seen in how we evaluate morality. You see, our hearts also get us to believe the empty promises whispered into our ears by the things that we covet, the things that we set our desires and our hearts on, the voice that's whispering in our ears, if I don't have this thing, if I don't have this goal... If I don't have this status, this person, then I cannot be happy and I cannot be whole. I cannot be happy in my life. And as a result, it, it steals our joy and keeps us from delighting in anything else that we might have. Tim Keller tells the story of a person he once tried to counsel who was dealing with the same problem. He writes, In my first pastorate, I met with a teenage girl in our congregation. She was about 16 or 17 at the time, and, and she was discouraged and she was becoming depressed. So I tried to encourage her, uh, reminding her of all the things that she did have going for her, but there was a, a revelatory moment when she said, yes, I, I know all that. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he saved me. and I know that he's going to take me to heaven, but what good is that if no boy at school will even look at you? And that's not just the response of the teenage heart. In a sense, that's how all of our hearts work. Think about how you would complete her sentence. When have you found yourself thinking, what good is all of this? Because your heart covets something else, something different, something more. I'm asking when, not if, because of something else that is true about our hearts. You see, our hearts are actually made to give themselves fully to something because they're meant to seek that one thing that can truly satisfy them. In Deuteronomy 6.5, God calls his people to love him with, with all of their hearts. Jesus calls it the greatest commandment. And when we hear that commandment, we think that the emphasis is on the degree of love. In other words, we read it like, don't just love God with a little bit of your heart. Love him a lot. In fact, love him with all you've got. And that much is true. But, but loving someone or something with all of your heart, with all that you've got, is not actually our problem. We actually do that pretty well. In fact, we might even be doing it right now. Think of the things that you find yourself daydreaming about frequently or maybe even while I'm talking to you. The things that your mind wanders to by by default. Think of the things that you find yourself diving into that you can totally lose track of time while doing. The things that you can get lost in. The things that you actually want to get lost in. What are the things that your money goes to without even a thought? If you're not sure sometime sit down, uh, and I mean sit down, in front of your your checkbook and, and brace yourself for those that still use checkbooks. Think of the things that you can seemingly give everything to. For me, the answer in high school was pretty obvious. It was my running. I was a competitive runner for years. Now, those of you who know me, I am not a morning person. This is the one day of the week that I set my alarm, if I can. But trying to be the best runner that I could was something that I was willing to let affect my whole life. What I ate, what I drank, what I didn't eat, what I didn't drink. In fact, I once called my coach the night before a race asking if it was okay to have pork chops that night. I mean, I was obsessed. I've trained through infections, I've trained through blizzard, through ridiculous heat, and I once even defied parental authority just so I wouldn't miss one training run, and that didn't turn out too well in the long run. But I was willing to do all of this because I believed that my running success could finally atone... For the rejection that I've experienced over the years because of my lack of coordination that made me so poor at so many other sports, back when being a good athlete was the key to popularity and acceptance. I thought that if I gave all to my running, that it would give me the love and the acceptance for my peers that I really longed for. You see, that's what I set my desire on. That's what I was setting my whole heart on. Maybe you would answer that a different way. But the reality is we already know how to set our hearts on something like this The question is, what happens when it's something other than God we're placing that expectation in? In his uh, commencement address at Kenyon College, the late American novelist David Foster Wallace describes our setting our hearts on and and giving ourselves to something by the word worship, in his sense. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, in other words, if they are what your heart covets, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I could add to his list, worship running and you'll become an obsessed jerk who lashes out at those you see as threats to your success, who rejoices over the illness and the injury of the competition, sometimes over those things in your teammates, and is not only a bad teammate but a really bad friend. Wallace follows his examples by saying, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. These are our default settings. And, and he's right. See, it's not just that we don't know how to set our hearts fully on something. It's that we don't know how not to do that. The problem with our hearts, hearts that were made to give themselves fully to the object of their greatest love, is that they're prone to do so with anything but God. And if you're not doing it with a real God, Our deceitful hearts will make something else into a a functional God and mistakenly look to that thing to meet our deepest longings, to satisfy us completely. It's a process the Bible calls idolatry. John Calvin actually describes this process when he called the human heart an idol factory. It just keeps cranking them out. In his book, Counterfeit, God's Tim Keller describes an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. As Greg mentioned last week, idols are almost always good things like family or honor or influence or beauty, good things that we mistakenly treat like an ultimate thing. We can tell that we've begun to do that and made something into an idol when our concern for that thing produces in us the most uncontrollable emotions so that we're not just upset but we find ourselves going nuts when we can't get them or when something else threatens them in our lives. By now, you might be wondering, well, what does this all have to do with loving your neighbor? What does this have to do with the commandments? Well, here's your connection. An idol-making heart is a coveting heart. That's what we heard in the scripture reading uh, in Colossians 3.5, which equates covetousness with idolatry. You see, all other commandments simply describe for us what that heart will look like in action. Take honor, for example. To honor someone is to show deference towards another person and and the instruction that they give or their authority. But the heart that idolizes honor only wants to receive honor and not give it to another. You see, we all want to be our own authority. We don't want to submit to another's authority. You see, when we covet something for ourselves like honor, it makes it nearly impossible to give it To another, or if we make an idol of our own intellectual powers or powers of perception, we'll find it nearly impossible to honor those that we disagree with or even see anything positive in them. The heart that sees another as a threat to the things that we covet, the things that we idolize, will actually feel justified in devaluing their life, their personhood, their reputations, or their freedom, whether by our actions or more commonly by our words the heart that actually covets another's possessions, whether because they idolize it or they idolize the thing that it represents, will actually feel justified either in taking what is not rightfully theirs or more commonly, will feel woefully discontent when somebody has something that we don't. Think about it. When does the two-year-old want that toy that they previously had no interest in? When another child picks it up. See, the heart that idolizes beauty or the heart that idolizes relationships, the heart that idolizes feeling significant, or the heart that idolizes pleasure, any of those hearts can lead us to find themselves violating the spirit of the seventh commandment, whether through our bodies, our eyes, or our thoughts. In fact, just about any form of idolatry can lead you to break virtually any of God's commandments. You see, idolizing comfort can lead you to lie through your teeth, or it can lead you to sleep with a prostitute. You could lie through your teeth because of an idolatrous desire for respect to make yourself appear better than you actually are, kind of like manipulating respect of others, or out of an idolatrous desire for control over your own life, or control over another's life, or control over others' perceptions of you. You see, when something other than God becomes your ultimate end, anything or anyone can become a means to that end. People get stepped on, run over, neglected, And it's our neighbors, those that are closest to us that often pay the highest price. And Jesus says this call to love your neighbor, obeying God's commandment to do so is not merely about your neighbor. And it's not merely about you. Jesus says it's actually about him. Jesus as God in the flesh said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. See, we don't simply have an obedience problem. We have a love problem. Problem. We have a heart problem. And if all of these things are true of our hearts, if that's actually our problem, then what's the solution? Well, if the problem is our hearts, then what we need is a new heart. So we heard about in the reading from Ezekiel 36 last week when God says to his people, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You need to understand that in the Old Testament, wording uh, an old, a heart of stone or a hard heart is described as one that doesn't respond to God, that's not sensitive to his words. And the way that God actually removes our hardened hearts, the way that he softens them and makes them responsive to himself is not by the demands that he makes of us, but by what he gives to us, what he does for us. Do you notice what it says in verse 6 of our passage? Where God says, I am the Lord your God, who what? Brought you out of Egypt. Well, what was that like? Out of the land of slavery. See, before God asks anything of his people, he first does something for his people that they could never do for themselves. He sees their bondage. He sees their suffering in it. And he sees their inability to be free of their own desires. And so in response, he does what is necessary to liberate them. Only afterwards does he give the Ten Commandments or any of the rest of his law. And that's the pattern that you see throughout Scripture. God's grace always comes before his law. It's always grace before ethics. All of the commandments that God gives comes in this context. The context of grace. It's always grace that leads the way. It's grace that actually leads us to change. They're simply instructions to liberated, freed people on how to actually live free. Because of this, something else has captured our hearts. The reality is that we're always going to find ourselves enslaved to whatever captures our hearts, but when God's liberation comes and he captures your heart, he actually frees you to live a new life, to live a new way. It's captured beautifully in Victor Hugo's Les Mis. In the story, Jean Valjean is a convicted thief recently freed from prison. Now that he's out, he is literally a card-carrying convict. And as a result of that, he struggles to find someone to hire him. He struggles to find a place uh, that he could, could sleep and rest until a bishop finally takes him in. That night, though, as Valjean looks at the silver he eats his supper with. His first meal in four days, rather than gratitude, something else arises in his coveting heart. After everyone has gone to bed, his coveting heart starts to show itself in a multitude of ways. First, it sneaks downstairs, where he steals the silver from that bishop. When he's discovered by that bishop, the very one who showed him hospitality, that same coveting heart expresses itself in violence when he knocks the bishop out. And later on, as he leaves and eventually is discovered by the authorities, he dishonors them with his lies, claiming that the silver was, was merely a gift of the generous bishop. Well, soon he's back in the bishop's home, under lock and key, standing before the one that he robbed, the one that he assaulted, who still bears the visible marks of Valjean's greed on his bruised face. Just imagine what it would be like to stand there in Jean Valjean's shoes, looking into the eyes of the one who showed you so much kindness, whose bruises and wounds show how you've shown the opposite, testifying to your own sin. You can imagine the fear in Jean Valjean's eyes, having lost the last 19 years of his life, the prime of his life for just one crime, now to be facing even more for what he did to the one before him. If you can imagine that, then you can imagine the utter unbelief when the bishop the one that he had wronged, the one who has the power to condemn him before the authorities, instead chooses to liberate him, saying to him, Jean Valjean, so here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Did you forget to take the candlesticks as well? They're worth 200 francs each. How did you forget them? Victor Hugo writes, Jean Valjean's eyes had widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression no words could convey. Valjean's surprise, the bishop didn't give him what he deserved. Instead, he gave him what he needed most. He gave him what he needed to be free. Soon the handcuffs are removed. The police walk away, and it's just him and the bishop. That night, Valjean's promise be a new man ends up bringing truth to the rest of the story as you see the life of somebody uh, who is kind and generous and merciful to his neighbor in the way that he had never been before and the reason why is summed up in the bishop's response to Valjean's question why are you doing this the bishop replies Jean Valjean my brother you no longer belong to evil With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, those things that had controlled him, and I have now given you back to God. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. And as we've said here before, it cost him a lot more than silver or candlesticks. It cost him his very life. Not a single wound to the face like the bishop, but wounds in his hands, wounds in his feet, a spear piercing his side. You see, to confront the problem of our coveting hearts, hearts that are willing to do anything and to give everything to get what they most desire, God's solution was Jesus giving everything to get what he desired, to get you. In his life, Jesus fulfilled all of God's commandments, perfectly loving his neighbor his whole life and offers you the gift of his perfect record in exchange for him taking upon himself your imperfect record. and if fulfilling God's laws... That means paying the penalty that the law demands, not just for his sins, because he had none, but for your sins. See, just like the Bishop Silver, forgiveness always costs. It costs the very thing that the forgiver um, was actually owed by the other, the one thing that the other person should have paid. And because the wages of our sin is death, our forgiveness would actually cost Jesus the exact same price. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. You see, Jesus came into this world to perfectly love us as his neighbor, and we see that most supremely on the cross so that those who receive his liberating gift, his forgiveness, would actually be freed from the things that keep us from loving our neighbors, who have experienced his grace that those lesser objects of love and worship and trust pale in comparison to the one who gave everything for us. When we see that, when we see the cost that Jesus paid for our freedom, for your salvation, it gives you in Jesus a better object of worship, one who is actually worthy of giving your whole heart to because he has given everything for you. He's shown your love for you that way, that you might be free from the false gods that demand everything and can give nothing in return, that your heart would be captured by him, that you might live free, liberated, loving lives. 1999, Roberto Benigni's Italian movie, Life is Beautiful, won the Oscar for the best foreign language film. It's one of their very few movies I actually own. In the movie, an Italian Jewish man named Guido and his wife Dora and their son Joshua are taken to a concentration camp in the final weeks of World War II to help his son to endure and survive in a place that has little use for little children other than sending them to the gas chamber He helps his son to think of his experiences as a game, a a game that they're all playing together to keep his heart calm. To win, he tells his son that he must hide from the guards that are always yelling all the time. A big game of hide-and-go-seek, bringing a smile to his face where otherwise terror would have been there. To help his son, who misses his mama and misses his favorite toy, a little wooden tank, Uh, Guido tells his son that the prize at the end of the game will be to see his mama again, and the grand prize is a tank. Not just another toy tank, but a real tank. But only at the end of the game, the ultimate game of hide-and-go-seek. Eventually, Guido's efforts to protect his son, to reunite with his wife, these efforts eventually would cost him his life. And even in his last moments, as he is being marched to his death through the courtyard, As his son watches from his hiding place with a little eye slit for him to see through, knowing the effect it could have on his son's heart to know what's about to happen, the father in his love smiles broadly. As he marches, he starts exaggerating his motions like a toy soldier so that his son stays calm, doesn't freak out, doesn't run out of the box to his eventual death, but stays hidden even three minutes later when a distant gunshot from a hidden alley signals the end of Josue's life. Sorry, Guido's life. The next morning, after the Nazis had fled the coming troops, the son, the boy, little Josue, little Joshua, emerges from his hiding place, the place that his father had kept him hidden, and he sees what you see in this film clip. As the allies have rolled in, as we're going to see in this next film, the camp is liberated. We see that everybody is set free, and as we see in the next film, the clip that I think is following right after this one, he is not the only one who is set free, he is not the only one who is liberated, and soon he recognizes one of them. if your faith is in Jesus Christ, this is your story too. The story of one who sacrificed everything for the one that they loved, who sacrificed for you so that you could be liberated, so that you can live free, showing you a love so beautiful and so complete and so satisfying that it could overwhelm every other longing, everything else that you would be tempted to set your heart on, freeing you from the bondage to them, enabling you to live a new life A life of loving your neighbor because Jesus became your neighbor and loved you to the end. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for captivating love that you show us in Jesus, one who came to live the life that we should have lived but but couldn't, who died the death that our sins deserve so that we could be free, so that we could be Liberated, so that we could live not just life, but that we should live life free from the things that would capture our heart, free from the things that would enslave us because we have found in you something better to capture our heart, something more beautiful, more loving, more worthy of giving ourselves to because you gave everything to us first. Meet us here at this symbol of your love, this reminder of your love. Meet us here even at this table of your sacrificial love. Amen. Amen. Thank